And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, May 31st. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, my good friend Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? Doing pretty good. How you doing? I'm okay. I got vacation brain. <laughs> So I'm settling back <laughs> in here. Good or bad. Sometimes that's a good thing, though. Yeah, it was great. It was great. We were gone for nine days, which is kind of a crazy amount of time. We really took advantage of the Memorial Day weekend, and we did five days in Mexico City, and then four days in Cabo. And I, I challenged. I, I, I probably broke a land speed record for how many how many tortillas you can eat in <laughs> a nine day stretch. I mean, in various forms, obviously. Some just fresh. Some in a chip sort of form. But we ate incredibly well. I mean, it was a food-based trip. It's why we wanted to go to Mexico and why we wanted to go to Mexico City. And we had reservations at like amazing restaurants every night and just in between interspersed, just either after or before going to grab a couple tacos here or there. I convinced myself that you can always eat two more tacos. It doesn't matter what you've eaten over the course of the day or what you're about to eat. If you want to sneak them in at 3 p.m. or midnight or whenever, it's always possible. So we had a great combination of stuff. It was very, very fun. Yeah, there's there's always room. I've, whatever the dish is, I found that there's always room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. All right, so let's get into this. We we wanted to, we we're going to do our normal mailbag again, uh, just because of the travel schedule and also because yesterday was Memorial Day. We didn't want anybody to record a Memorial Day. Uh, we're doing this on Tuesday morning, so it's probably going to be up hopefully around noon. You guys are listening to it, but our typical Tuesday mailbag and really appreciate you guys sending in questions. A lot of questions specifically for Mitch, which I love because obviously he can provide a perspective that I certainly cannot. So let's get to it. Robert Graham Gazda asks, a while back, you and Lindsay talked about the car continuum and how a QB needs to be above Derek Carr to warrant a long-term deal. So what an utterly amazing way to visualize the quarterback market. It got me thinking. What about all the quarterbacks that orbit Carr in the continuum? Those on both sides of what I'm calling the car vent horizon. The ones that fluctuate on the horizon. Golf with the Rams, Jimmy G with the, T- with the Niners, Tannehill with the Titans, and Baker maybe. All these quarterbacks have flashed and then fallen back to earth at points, leaving teams with a top market deal and an average market player. My question is this. In this era of the NFL, where can these guys go? Should a team try a multi-deer with a guy whose floor depends on the people around him? And if so, what's worth paying for above average quarterback play? As a Lions fan looking at possibly two more years of golf, it's been itching at me what golf is. The reason I wanted to talk about this is that I feel like too often we talk and speak in vacuums and hypotheticals when it comes to this show and just in general. It's like, oh, if you don't have one of the guys above that line, then you're screwed. None of this matters. What are you doing? And there's all, and Dan Orlovsky tweeted a list today, and it was the car continuum list, which I thought was very funny. It's 11 guys. There are 32 NFL teams. So the 32 teams have to do something at quarterback. And I think framing it this way helps us deal in the real world a little bit more because eventually you're going to have one of these guys. So how should you treat them? I think is an important 
question an important consideration. So I wanted to lay this on you. When you're looking at one of those guys, a Tannehill, a Baker, a Jared Goff, Jimmy Garoppolo, how do you think about those quarterbacks in the larger scale of the league? It seems like we're going towards what should happen, which is a price tier for those quarterbacks. Yeah. The problem we got into is that whatever quarterback was next up to get paid kind of regardless of skill level and regardless of where they fall on the continuum, they just got the next highest contract. So you ended up with the Wentz deal, the Goff deal. And now we're kind of transitioning out of that. It seems, you know, Cleveland, obviously not willing to pay Baker that much to me, the guy is Alex Smith. I mean, he got to the chiefs. I think he signed for like four years, 60 million signed for 15 a year when quarterbacks were making more than that. Then he goes to Washington. He signs for, you know, 20-ish a year when guys are making into the 30s. So I think there should be this kind of middle class of quarterbacks that makes 20, 25 a year, which, again, it sounds like a lot of money. But when the top guys are making 40 to 50, that's about 50 to 60 percent of the top end of the quarterback. And I think at that price, yeah, these guys make sense because you're not blowing 20% of the cap on one guy who can't elevate the other 80% of the cap and you're saving say 20 million off a top end deal. Well, that 20 million can go into one superstar defender, one superstar wide receiver that makes the offense that much easier, maybe a couple offensive linemen. And I think that's the place for these guys. And it's also, I mean, for GMs, I think, Obviously, the GMs would love to have the superstar quarterback and then figure everything else out. But I feel like the kind of ideal situation is to have an awesome roster and then you can put in a quarterback and then it elevates it to being an elite roster. You know, we've seen that again with the Rams, with, you know, kind of Cleveland's process, taking Miles Garrett the year before, you know, prioritizing a complete roster before you plop a guy in. I think we're seeing that with Chicago a little bit, even though they have the quarterback, but the roster is not good enough. They're kind of prioritizing the roster and then hoping that that elevates the quarterback down the road. And so if you're paying one of these guys in the 20 to 25 range, I think that's decent enough. You know, they're competent quarterbacks. They're not going to, you know, lose you games or not bottom tier quarterbacks. You know, we saw this last year with golf a little bit, like you'll get frustrated at the guy throughout the year because he's not quite as good as you wish him to be but he's still good enough to win some games. And as the roster starts to turn, uh, he'll look better as well. So if you're paying these guys the right amount, I'm totally for it. Just for so long, teams weren't paying these guys the right amount. They were paying them way above kind of their uh, true market value. And as we're getting into a situation where these guys are getting paid fair to what they're worth, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, it's pretty dreary to go into the season and just be like, well, we got a bottom five quarterback and we're going to suck this year. Um, that's just not, not fun for anybody in the organization, except allegedly Steven Ross, but, um, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's not something that you necessarily want to do. And I think as these kind of process situations get played out, you know, over various sports, we're realizing that kind of fostering a losing attitude, a losing spirit and just being okay with it doesn't really seem to work a ton. You know, most of the teams that have success and have these rebuilds, they don't go through that. Like they have a down period or they get lucky. You know, Indy got lucky that one year that Peyton Manning was out for the year and Andrew Luck was in the draft. But like the teams that kind of purposely lose and try to position themselves, it doesn't necessarily work out. Um, so I think, you know, that that's not the way to do it. So if you can have one of these middle tier quarterbacks 
and you can win a few more games than you're supposed to because the other guys in your roster play well. I'm, I'm definitely all for that. I think that's a really good way to frame it where you have to understand what this is for where you're getting this person along your trajectory, how much you're paying them, all of those different factors. And if you look at some of these examples of when it's worked out okay, I think it's understanding that these guys are just good enough to win with and the circumstances are favorable. So you have to try to keep the circumstances favorable. You have to be paying them a certain amount. You have to be paying them a certain amount at some point along your timeline as a team. I think there are a couple of good examples. The Titans going out and trading for Ryan Tannehill is a huge success. Like when they traded for him, what they traded for him, what they were paying him to go get that guy was huge for them. Then they paid him and it became a little less favorable. The What the Niners did with Jimmy G, you look at what the Niners did with Jimmy G's contract. It was a huge contract when they signed it. They front loaded it so much when they were terrible and they weren't paying anyone else. It was a $37 million cap hit the first year of the deal. And then he averaged 22 for the next four years. You can live with that. I mean, you can understanding what Jimmy G is at $22 million, you can build the rest of your team that way. Baker on a rookie deal, you can live with that. Jared Goff on a rookie deal, you can live with that. It's after you pay the guys that it becomes a little bit more difficult. But I think what you said about having one of those guys as a way to keep yourself competent as you're trying to figure out where you're going to go from here, and that to me is what Jared, what, uh, Jared Goff is for the Lions right now. They're probably paying a premium to make that happen, but they seem willing to pay that premium so they're at least functional on offense. So they and they're along their timeline, this is a temporary thing. Jared Goff is not going to be the quarterback of the future for the Lions. And I think they understand that. And it's important to understand that. So it's fine having one of these guys. I think it's just the problem comes when you delude yourself into thinking this guy is different than what he actually is, whether that's monetary value, his ceiling, how it elevates the players around him, all of those things. Well, the interesting thing is we're kind of listing off all these guys is every team has wanted to move on from them. Like they've all been replaced at some point. So you either draft the guy, you surround him with an awesome roster. You realize like maybe he's holding you back from your top end value and you move on from him. That's, you know, the Rams or Kyle shows up and you trade for a guy and you realize like, yeah, maybe he's not, you know, getting us to exactly where we want to be. You know, he got him to two minutes away from a Super Bowl victory, but we need to replace him. So you trade three first to, to get a quarterback who you think has a better timeline. You know, Cleveland traded for a quarterback who, when he's on the field, is much better than Baker. You know, so as you said, understanding what you have and all these franchises realize like, Hey, we kind of need one of the top five guys to win it all or to have, you know, a, an 11 win floor and just know like, we're going to be in the playoffs every year. We're probably going to have a home game or two. And we've got a very real chance of winning the super bowl. Not, you know, if our roster stays healthy and we can, you know, play good defense and, you know, we kind of get lucky and we play the right teams, maybe we'll have a chance, you know, having that elite quarterback is where you want to be. So to your point, it is very specific. There's a certain timeline thing. I mean, Carolina has been looking for league average quarterback play for the last few years and (laughs) they might be a little bit further along. Like they're probably the bad example or the great example of trying to get one of these guys, but just not choosing the right ones. Like I think they were going for, you know, they gave Bridgewater, what, 18 a year, 20 a year. Obviously, Darnold, they thought maybe Reclamation Project. Like, they just wanted a top 12 quarterback. They could be okay having the 12th best quarterback. They just struck out a few times uh, trying to land it. And so 
you know, teams definitely understand you, you can't really go get a superstar quarterback. Um, I guess the landscape changing a little bit. You could potentially trade for one if a guy gets disgruntled enough, but um, it's just, it's, it's exceedingly difficult to do that. And the draft is a whole other, you know, gamble. And so if your roster is at a certain level and, you know, like you said, you just want this certain level of competency, uh, a lot of these guys do make sense. Again, caveat for the right price. When you're saying if we play good defense, if we get a couple breaks, if we build the ro- up the rest of the roster in the right way, that's o- it's okay to think that way for a time. It, you can't think that way for 10 years. That That's not going to be sustainable for any extended period of time. But for a couple years as you're figuring things out, I think that's okay. I think you can live that way as long as you give yourself outs from that plan as long as there's an end date on it as long as you have the flexibility to say all right we have enough draft capital to go do this we can make this move and i will say so being in the huddle just being in a locker room there's a stark difference between a quarterback who gets it and a guy who doesn't you know i was in cleveland obviously i had a few guys who weren't quite as good you know we got josh mccown we got Brian Hoyer, like even playing with those guys, you know, Hoyer just seemed like so advanced, like, oh my God, he got a grasp on this. And then like <laughs> get Josh McCown, who's been around for 15 years and for 12 different teams and knows everything. It's like, oh my God, there's another level of like mental acumen. And then you go to Kansas City, you play with Alex Smith. And I was like, oh my God, quarterbacks can like be this good. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> and then obviously you play with Pat and, you know, the ceiling gets busted off of that. But there's a very different feeling in the building, just like knowing that your guy gets to the right plays, knows what to do, can throw the ball accurately. Like there might be a couple of frustrating plays, but just there is a confidence. There is just that that certain level of trust and comfort with having a guy who can do those things. And uh, I think that's what we lose sight of from the outside when we think like, oh, well, you know, Jimmy's not good enough. They can move on. But like having the trust that I can call these specific plays, he knows what to do. He'll get the ball out on time. Like he might make a bonehead play or two, but like, I can do all these things and have enough trust and confidence in him. The guys trust him. They play hard. Like we know that every time we take the field, we can win. That's a very valuable thing for a franchise. And I think that's probably the the best example right now, in my opinion, is Cousins. Because the Vikings theoretically could have moved on from him. I mean, the new regime walks in. It wouldn't have been easy. He had a $35 million base salary. I don't know who was taking that on. It wouldn't have been an easy contract to deal But you're looking at Kirk Cousins, and every single coach has looked at Kirk Cousins at some point and been like, I can win with that guy. I can absolutely win with that guy. Kyle wanted him for that reason. The Rams, I think when the Rams were looking at Goff in his first year, if Goff hadn't worked out, if McVay had walked in and been like, no, this isn't going to work. There's absolutely no way I can win with this guy. Cousins, that was the timeline where Cousins might be available, right? It was that 2017 into 18 season. So there was a world where maybe the Rams would have gone after Jared Goff. Kevin O'Connell knows Kirk Cousins. He worked with Kirk Cousins in Washington. He understands what Kirk Cousins is. And when you're walking in and you're an offensive coach, you absolutely can say, oh, for yeah, absolutely. I can win with Kirk Cousins. That, no problem. I can do that. It's about how much you're paying him. So I'm sure Minnesota was thinking, well, why wouldn't we just pay Kirk Cousins $35 million when the quarterback market is now up at $45, 50000000 million? So you're not paying him top of market money. You're paying him one tier down from that. He is one tier down from that as a quarterback. It's two years. Even theoretically, we could move on next year because of the way the contract is structured and if we need an out from it, it's absolutely worth paying this price 
looking to keep ourselves at a certain level this year. And think about the alternatives that Minnesota would have been looking at if they hadn't paid Kirk Cousins. Teddy Bridgewater, okay, Marcus Mariota, Jacoby Brissett, Mitchell Trubisky. Those are the guys available in free agency this year. So you're paying those guys $5 million, $6 million, $7 million. If they're your starter, probably closer to like 8 to $10 million if you end up giving them that deal. So is it worth paying those guys 8 to $10 million rather than paying Kirk Cousins $35 million with the difference between those two guys? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's worth paying that premium, but that's the decision that a team like Minnesota had, and they went the Kirk Cousins route. I mean, you're the perfect guy to ask. Would you rather have Trubisky for $10 million or Cousins for $35 million? In a vacuum, probably Trubisky for $10 million. But like you just said, like, would you, in a huddle, would you feel the difference in Kirk Cousins and Mitchell Trubisky? How much would you feel it? And is it worth paying $25 million for the difference in that feeling? I think you probably would. I think you'd feel it because, I mean, Kirk is very confident and he might just not prefer to throw downfield on third and 13 and and might just want the check down. But like, to your point, all these other times he is a good quarterback and he does all these things that you like. Where Trubisky, like, it kind of sucks just knowing like this ball might be eight yards offline. Like it's that kind of inconsistency that's just like, disheartening when you see a ball land five feet short of your receiver and it's just an awful pass and I mean Trubisky has shown that like you have to make the offense so specific to have him have kind of any level of NFL success where Cousins has been in kind of the same scheme for a lot of his career and he's had good success with it but I think you would trust him in a more diverse scheme definitely a more diverse passing attack and so you know, a $25 million difference, I think is warranted because I think Trubisky is not only kind of team dependent, he's very much coordinator dependent. And I don't think Cousins is is quite the same in that regard. Um, You're also, you know, you're banking on at this point, I mean, Cousins is my draft class. So it's like 10 years of pretty much the same quarterback play. I mean, realistically, seven to eight years of the same quarterback play, you've got durability, you've got this very high floor of what you know exists. And I think, is it that uh, Minnesota has like the least variance week to week? Was that the deal the last couple yeah. of years? Yeah. They're like it's just, it's the same every week and coaches place right or wrong, a premium on knowing what you're going to get and knowing you what know you're going to get is huge. It is yeah. so important. And that's why when they look at him, they're like, I know what that is. And I find comfort in that. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, for forever, the toolsy guys haven't been drafted as high because you don't know what you're going to get. There's not a certainty there. And we're realizing now that, you know, these elite quarterbacks have a lot of different tools and you kind of have to gamble on it. And then Josh Allen kind of broke everyone's expectations of how much a guy can improve. And now toolsy is getting more in vogue because you just need to reach for the top end. But for, you know, a hundred years, the NFL has valued, you know, a certain level of, I know what I have in this person at the quarterback position, and it might not be what I want at the top end, but the bottom end is good enough. And we can hope and dream on what the top end could be. And that's when you're looking at all the quarterback deals in in that middle class still doesn't really exist that much. You could argue that now that cousins deal is kind of the middle class 
if Watson's getting 46 and Mahomes is getting 45 and Cousins is getting 35, 75% of what those guys are getting. But the, the deal that now stands out to me among all of these contracts, because they're, the step down from that for starter quarterbacks is Winston and Mariota. Mariota is like absolutely a bridge quarterback. Like he's They're moving on from him. That, that contract is inflated. It's really $5 million this year and then a lot next year when they can move on from it. The deal that jumps out to me is the Winston deal, where the, the Saints are like, all right, he is a marginally real quarterback. We're paying him $14 million. That's what it's going to be, and we can live with that. And I think that is not a bad strategy. <laughs> I completely understand that as a dice roll when you look at the quarterback landscape in general. So that I definitely understand, and it's a good price. The problem is, how are you going to convince any of these guys who have played for four years like, hey, we're just going to offer you $15 million and you're going to be okay with it. Because the expectation of all these quarterbacks, the reason they get all frustrated is they expect to be the next in line and, oh, I'm good enough and I'm better than this other guy and I need $40 million, blah, blah, blah. Like, none of the guys that are going to get paid this amount that we think is reasonable will get paid it, like, coming off their fourth season and they're out, I mean, their extension ready after three, but, like, coming off the fourth season because you didn't quite trust them after three and they had a kind of middling year. The team was nine and eight. You know, maybe they snuck into the playoffs. They got bounced in the first round. The team's like, you know, you're just not a top level starter. You know, we value you as a mid-tier guy. We're going to give you 15 to 18 million a year. Like no quarterback's going to say yes to that. that that's going to lead to the quarterback getting frustrated and taking all the team's stuff off his Instagram and trying to force a trade. And then he'll go through a couple of years of turmoil. And eventually you get to the point where it's like, I'll just take this deal. It's a low level starter deal, a high level backup deal. I'll bet on myself. And again, to your point, that's a two year window with the guy that the team's committing to, and they're going to offer two for 36. And if the guy turns into a better player in year seven, you know, maybe then he does get the $40 million deal. And if he doesn't, he's just got, you know, a Bridgewater, type of career where he just bounces around and the team hopes on him. So yeah, it, it, it takes a specific situation for a quarterback to also agree to this level of compensation that we feel is probably right for a lot of these guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, let's get to our next one here. Jack Hamrack asks, as a Panthers fan, the end of last season felt very odd. The team was spiraling, being blown out each week, and the energy felt like the franchise should be headed towards a regime change when the season ended and the blowouts were over. It really felt like the end of something rather than doing it all over again. Rule is now back for year three, and we hear a lot in the media about how Rule being a lame duck coach and a general sense of him being gone soon, something I'm desperately waiting for. My question for Mitch, as a player, do you have a sense of when a coach is probably on the way out? Heading into that type of season, does that affect your mindset at all when you're listening to them in camp meetings, etc.? You're uniquely positioned to talk about this, I feel like. Yep, uh, unfortunately I am. You know, I don't think it... I would hope at least that you aren't like, ah, oh, this guy's a lame duck. I'm not going to listen to him. I would say there's probably a couple camps in that regard. One is that he's just not a very effective coach and you've already checked out on him and you're already not listening to him. But I would say that 
the guy who is listening to the stuff and kind of knows the business and thinks like, Hey, my coach might be canned after this year. To me, there's like a level of responsibility and a level of awareness to that, that I think you'd also be responsible and aware enough to like not tune him out and to know that your job is more important and in, in that vacuum than his job. Um, so it's almost like opposing viewpoints that if you're concerned and you kind of know that he might get fired and you understand the kind of business reality of that, you also understand the business reality of yourself maybe being fired and not playing well, and you're just going to do whatever you need to do to, to be successful. And it's the guys he's already lost on the team that already are not listening to him. I mean, I've had coaches and just like, all right, we get it. Like we don't need a fifth meeting this week about accountability. Like I understand uh, time to move on. <laughs> like it's the second preseason game. Like you're giving us another new rocking speech. Like <laughs> we don't, we don't need this. What are you going to do in week four when we're one and two and the game actually matters? Like it's not going to hold any value when you're giving us the same speech in week two of the preseason. So these things, it, it kind of just, you're with the guy every day and you form your own opinion. It's not necessarily like the media saying, Oh, he might get fired or like kind of the general surroundings that inform your decision. And I mean, you should be responsible enough, whether a coach, like whether you bond with the coach, whether you like his meetings, his sayings, his coaching style, all that stuff, it's kind of irrelevant. Like it's the impetus is on you to prepare yourself the best that you can and to perform the best that you can. And you also know that they'll replace you as quick as they can as well. Like they're either trying to replace you with someone. Well, they're trying to replace you with someone better. That's a fact. And whether that better is cheaper and or younger, like that's what a team is always doing. So the quicker you kind of learn that in the NFL and you don't get settled, you don't get comfortable, you don't take anything for granted. um, That's, the best you'll be from, you know, kind of the personal side. Is there a playbook that you saw the coaches followed when things started to get a little bit out of their grasp? Were there more of those Newt Rockney speeches or was each coach kind of individual? Did each coach handle that downward spiral in his own individual way? No, they, I mean, every coach has his own personality. So I think they mostly, I mean, they don't address it. It's not like, Hey guys, I know you're probably hearing that I might get fired in a few weeks. Like we're not, I know it's not that, that overt, but <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm sure some guys say like, hey, there's a lot of noise in the media. Like, let's not listen to it. Let's just focus on the task at hand, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, But no, I mean, every coach just kind of has his own vibe, you know, has his own way of doing things. And um, it's 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 just it's, it's interesting to be in those situations. I mean, when I got to Cleveland, it was my rookie year and Jimmy Haslam had just bought the team. And so, you know, you kind of know that uh, unless a guy's having a certain level of success he's probably going to get fired after a new owner takes over like that's just the way things go and then the team is like four and 12 or whatever so you kind of just know that everything's going to change and there's a realistic expectation but there's also pat Shermer. i mean we know his demeanor so it's not like he's going to go in there and kind of give crazy speeches and get fired up and stuff it's just you know let's focus on the task let's try to get better let's try to win games and um, that's really all you can do as cliche as it is. So you, you got drafted in 2012, right? And then you left Cleveland. What year? Uh, 15 was my last year. So that was the first time I had a coach for a second year, which was Mike Pettin and he subsequently <laughs> got fired. <laughs> the first, so your first three years in the league, you had three different head coaches. Yeah. So I get drafted and Jimmy Haslam buys the team like that training camp. Um, 
and it's year two of Pat Shermer. And so Shermer gets fired. We hire Rob Chazinski. So year two is Chazinski. He gets fired after one year. Year three is Mike Pettin. And he makes it through his second year. But Kyle Shanahan was our offensive coordinator. And that was a certain acrimonious split. And so, yeah, I always like to say two owners, three head coaches, four offensive coordinators, four GMs. When when Chadzinski gets fired after a year, there has to be part of you that's like, really? Like after a year? Or was it so bad that you understood it? Because that level of dysfunction where after one year a coach gets fired and you're sitting there in the middle of your rookie deal and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, like this is where I am, that has to be a pretty disheartening moment. Yeah, I mean, I was still too young to really comprehend that. Like I just assumed like, oh, well, I mean, we're not playing as well as we thought we would and we wanted to do better and, you know, they're going to make a change and we're going to get someone better. I mean, I personally didn't love Chudzinski's like, coaching style like it was I just kind of want someone to leave me alone and just let me do my thing like I'm very hard on myself and expectations and stuff and so he wasn't even like a yeller or screamer or anything but you know it just wasn't something that I liked as much you know some of the other guys liked it I mean I think of those years Joe actually might have thought he was the best of a certain amount of coaches and I didn't like him you know compared to that and I forget I mean we we do our coach rankings every now and again and it changes all the time because we have different memories at the certain time but like i, 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 just, would, I wasn't, would pay so much money to be a part of that browns former offensive lineman text chain yeah it's a, a lot of scar tissue there Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean it's just like that one was so that that story is that we had no idea he was getting fired i mean you don't expect your coach to get fired after a year i think it was the morning we were in pittsburgh week 17 um and I don't remember specifically, I know that morning, I think Schefter, one of those guys put out like, Hey, Chud might get fired. I don't remember if we caught wind of that before the game. Like, I don't know if that was tweeted before the game or during the game, but I do know we got back to our lockers after the game, we checked our phones and it was like, everyone expects Chud to get fired. Chud's going to get fired, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, what is going on? And so we are busing back from Pittsburgh because it's kind of like a hassle to fly there and yeah. it's a little bit easier to bus. So we were busing back from Pittsburgh and all these things were happening. Like guys are texting, like all their friends in the media world, like, Hey, what are you hearing? Have you gotten anything? Like we're texting each other. Like, Hey, is anyone on bus one? Like what's the attitude? What's the vibe? Like Chud said that he's fired. Like what's going on? And so we're trying to figure it out. Like everyone's refreshing Twitter, texting media people, trying to figure it out, texting each other on different buses. Like, hey, what's going on? Have you heard anything? Um, and then I think by the time we actually got back to Cleveland, like they had announced that he had officially been fired or something. So that one was very swift and it was a really interesting uh, bus ride back. And uh, that, that's one you don't quite forget. How devastating was it when Kyle left? Because that was that offense and that group, and in that in 2014, I talk about it this glowing way, where like the 2014 Browns offense for the first six games of the year is like a moment in time that I weirdly cherish as someone who wasn't there. For you guys, I'm sure you felt the same way. Whereas all this bullshit over your first couple years there, Kyle was there when you guys were healthy and Mac was there. It was healthy. You guys were playing well, and then he's just gone. I'm sure you're sitting there looking at each other, being like, man. That's that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> like I don't know what happens now. Yeah, it uh 
it wasn't very nice uh, to to hear that news because yeah, he was by far the best coach we'd had at that point, and obviously the most offensive offensive success. It's a fun scheme; we all liked it. Um, and then it's just like, well, that sucks. Like, uh, just gotta, I guess, wait for the next guy and figure out what the deal is. But no, it, 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 it was very different. I mean, that, that one year was, like I said, the most fun we had, the most success we had too. I mean, we were seven and four first in the AFC North after week 12. Um, you know, definitely didn't have any other moments like that in my Browns career. And it's just, it's nice to go into a game and, you know, have three dropbacks the whole game and just like run and play action and <laughs> feel like you have a pretty low stress game and, you know, win and have success with it. And I mean, we would get down 20 points and we just run the ball at a fast tempo and come back and run play action and stuff. So it's like, even when you got down, there was no panic. I mean, we had first game of the year, we were down in Pittsburgh by like 21 or 24 at the half. We came all the way back. I think we tied it. They won on a field goal. We beat Tennessee in Tennessee, 25 point comeback. I think it was the largest road victory in NFL history at the time. And we did those just running a super fast paced up-tempo offense and just kind of our normal stuff. It wasn't like, Hey, we're going to go four wide and throw the ball and you guys got to hold up and pass protection. So um, yeah, it was a lot of fun and it's definitely disheartening when, you know, kind of your favorite coach <laughs> gets the boot and, you know, you've seen it on different levels. I mean, you've heard Rogers talked about when, you know, the guys he likes that he's bond to the quarterback coach or coordinator, they leave, like, he's not very happy about that. And, you know, the work environment does matter and having trust in your coach and having a good time, all that stuff matters. And especially if you think they've also got this creative genius that allows the team and yourself to do better. Um, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not very fun. when that Could happens. you sense kind of the tension with him and everyone else in the building? Or is that something you guys were kind of shielded to in the moment? No, I mean, I guess we didn't quite realize what was going on behind the scenes with the Johnny stuff. It sounds like a lot of kind of the the things that weren't going on. I mean, it was like the Ray Farmer text during the game, like yeah. they put Johnny in and, you know, so I, I didn't get that sense. We didn't quite know that I'm sure every day they were like, Hey, you got to play him. You got to play him. You got to play him. Um, the only stuff I knew is just he and Pedden kind of got after it during training camp because they're both like super competitive. And so Kyle would be very frustrated that Pedden would put in like all these exotic blitzes on like day one. <laughs> and we wouldn't be able to prepare for him because we didn't know what the install was. And he's like, I just want to fucking run a base run against a simple defense and like get you guys the easy look and figure it out. And so our walkthroughs during training camp evolved into this like whole other situation because we weren't getting just base looks of like our simple run stuff and actual practice. Like Kyle was like, you know, you guys might see like one of these every four weeks, like these particular blitzes or pressures, or like a corner pressure into a weak side fullback lead weak zone or whatever. He's like, we're just never going to see this. Like you guys are practicing against the one-offs every second of training camp. And like, this isn't real. And then Joe formed a theory that basically no one in the Rex Ryan's uh, coaching tree had ever had a, a successful offense. And he said, it's because they didn't get to practice against like base looks and training camp and form their fundamentals. Like they were basically always in like super high alert game plan mode. Everything's moving. That's like you don't just get, yeah, you don't just get like, all right, go run against a base three, four or base four, three, and just like get really good at the fundamentals. And then you can game plan into certain blitzes. And, you know, you know, on this run this week, you got to be prepared for these four looks but it's just like, no, every day of training camp is blitz drill in every single period. And it was Joe's theory that 
you know, going back to like the Rex Ryan, um, New York days and obviously Pedden and stuff that, you know, maybe that's why that tree didn't quite have as much success. Offensively. All right. Kent, let's get to our next voice or our first voicemail here. Hey, Robert, big fan. I'm hoping you can settle a group text argument and traditional season action for us. Uh, this week, we got into a discussion about Hall of Fame cases, and in this case, uh, Mike, he has one of those sneaky resumes where he's putting up over a thousand yards per season for a number of years. Generally, if you want to zoom out, you know, what thresholds do you look? Because he only has one second team all pro. Love to hear this is a good question because it, Mike Evans is the player, by the way. It was a little bit muffled, but I, I confirmed that just to, to make sure that we were all on the same page here. But you look at Mike Evans' resume, and like he mentioned, he is approaching those numbers. And guys that get to 14,000 yards often get in. Even 13,000 yards, that's a typical threshold for most players to make the Hall of Fame. If you look at touchdowns, it's even more stark. Mike Evans already has more touchdowns than Torrey Holt, Andre Johnson. He could pass Reggie Wayne this year. All guys that are on the cusp of the Hall of Fame, Torrey Holt and Andre Johnson were finalists this year. If Mike Mike Evans has 74 touchdown catches. So if he gets six more for the next four years, he's right around 100. Only eight receivers ever have more than 100 touchdowns. Seven of them are in the Hall of Fame, and Larry Fitzgerald is the other one. So Mike Evans very easily, with five more not pedestrian, but by his standards, just okay years could have 14,000 yards and 100 touchdown catches, which would put him in the Hall of Fame or like would put him in the conversation for guys that typically get into the Hall of Fame. So these things are often pretty useful just to kind of throw out the name. And what is your knee jerk reaction? What is your gut feeling about that guy? So if I were to just ask you point blank, do you think Mike Evans, if uh, c- continues on this current trajectory, should be in the Hall of Fame? What would you say? I'd say no. I think it's an accumulator at a very high level, but I guess to, I mean, do we really want to get into the whole all pro pro bowl stuff? Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's important in this, in the context of this conversation. Right. It, well, I guess, you know, with me personally, my kind of history with it, but it's hard to say a guy who realistically wasn't really a top five receiver that often. I mean, he put up the stats of those guys, but if you were doing, you know, a draft or, whatever, like he probably wouldn't go in the top five most years of receivers in just terms of who do you want to start your offense with? And so that, that gets into the accumulation factor. Now, this was the debate last year with Stafford, you know, is he going to be a master accumulator? And when we look back, he's got every quarterback record, but he never really had the playoff success that kind of solved itself a little bit. Um, But this conversation specifically is very different from, the other sports because of the log jam with the NFL Hall of Fame anyway. Yeah. So you are competing for five spots in any given year. And I do think it's going to come down to like, how do we remember him? Because he's not going to be a first ballot guy for sure. And, you know, maybe he's got to wait five or six years, 10 years. And now he's sitting there with these other guys. You know, you talk about what Zach Thomas is a linebacker is still not uh, in the Hall of Fame. And you, I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, man, that guy was always a top three linebacker. Like he was a guy I played with on Madden, like all this cool stuff. Um, And I don't know the voters will look back, you know. Yeah, Mike Evans from 15 years ago. I remember him being an elite guy, you know, for a few years. I don't think anyone's necessarily thinking that. 
although the stats say like he had an awesome you know career of accumulating thousand yard seasons, a lot of touchdowns, all the stuff. So I, I do think there is how does he stack up against his peers? And it's not necessarily like Hall of Longevity or Hall of Durability. It's Hall of Fame, and I tend towards you know greatness and kind of that top level. Um, and so for me, it would be a no unless you know he goes on a relatively historic tear. And I think one of the cool things now, especially with you know all the stats and all the data, is you can more easily compare guys to their generation and kind of neutralize the stats. And obviously, this is only going to get worse and worse as 17 games becomes more realistic and you know you're going to have a 20,000 yard receiver eventually who maybe wasn't like the best guy in the league he just was durable for 15 years and he ended up with you know kind of all these yards and all these touchdowns all right i i think all of that is totally justifiable and reasonable i will just throw out this okay i i know the numbers are probably inflated because of the error he plays in but even if we account for that here are the players in NFL history who have averaged more receiving yards per game than Mike Evans, okay? Julio Jones, Calvin Johnson, Antonio Brown, DeAndre Hopkins, Torrey Holt, Marvin Harrison, Art Powell. That's it. There's only seven guys. I mean, he's right ahead of Jerry Rice on that list. And I again, Era and Jerry Rice played forever. The guys he's right ahead of. Jerry Rice, Lance Allworth, Michael Irvin, Keenan Allen, Andre Johnson, Terrell Owens, AJ Green, Randy Moss. So, I mean, it's even if we account for era, I mean, he is putting up a ton of numbers. So I, the, 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 if you're trying to make a comparison for guys that did not make all pros and all, I think all pro is typically a very good way to understand. All right. Where were you within the context of the best players at the position in, in the league? Isaac Bruce made one second team all pro. He won one Super Bowl. That was it. Those were his kind of big time accolades. Mike Evans has won one Super Bowl and has one second team all pro. So it has happened. So if he wins another one, let's say the Bucks win the Super Bowl again this year and Mike Evans gets maybe one more second team all pro along the way and crosses all of these statistical thresholds, I do think it will become a conversation and I think justifiably it will be a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I guess at that point, but I'm a little less inclined to say like a second ring means he's Hall of Fame worthy. Like, but the other people will say that. <laughs> I know. I'm saying me personally, I just I don't really love that argument. You know, we started this podcast talking about quarterbacks who are dependent on everything else around them. Um, you know, as a receiver, you're kind of dependent on everything else around you to win a Super Bowl. Between him and like Andre Johnson. Andre Johnson is to me a, a more justifiable Hall of Famer than Mike Evans is. And like, what about Anquan Bolden? It's, it's an unfair question to ask me because of the spot that Anquan Bolden holds in my right, heart. But I, I guess that's the point is like those two guys kind of fringe like Hall of Fame cases. Is Andre Johnson even in yet? No, Andre Johnson was a finalist this year, which I was kind of surprised by. The fact that he got that far? Yes, so quickly. I think that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because it's. I think it goes back to that knee-jerk gut feeling thing. Like when yeah, I watched Andre Johnson those play, two guys, because I feel like both of those guys at some point you thought like this dude was a baller and either the best in the NFL or a top two or three guy for whatever reason. Um, 
And I just don't think anyone necessarily has that feeling about Evans. And I think that's kind of the knee jerk thing that you're talking about. Like your gut says this wasn't a guy that I ever thought was among the elite at his position. Like he was very good for a while, but it's the hall of fame. And especially the way the NFL has it structured, it's very, very selective and particular voting process. And there's just going to be this log jam. And I think he's going to sit at the bottom for a really long time. I, that, that's totally fair, especially at that position. I, I think he's comparable to the guys that we talked about that have waited a little bit. Isaac Bruce is in now, but Reggie Wayne, Tory Holt, I think he's in that conversation with those guys. And that log jam has been created because of numbers and because of inflation. There are a lot of people in that line. Steve Smith is going to be in that line. I think he will eventually get in. But it, that log jam is created at that spot, I think, in large part because of the way the game has changed. And I think that the same conversation is going to apply to Mike Evans as applied to those other guys. But of this era, I mean, the guys currently in the NFL, Antonio Brown is a really complicated thing, and I don't know what's going to ultimately happen with that. But you know, the guys currently in the league or just out of the league, like Fitz is no doubt about it going to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think Julio is no doubt about it going to be in the Hall of Fame. But other than that, I think at receiver, it gets a little bit complicated. And we're going to see that play out over the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, there also might be a luck factor and kind of just like when you retire, what the other guys look like around you, kind of how that gets timed out. Because what was it like? I think there's something, you know, Joe's year might be coming up even. There's like three guys. There's like Joe, Calvin Johnson, like I forget the specifics, but like you might just retire the wrong year and there are three like first ballot hall of famers you get no consideration at all and then you just kind of don't get to build that momentum because a lot of these awesome guys are going to retire and you know kind of keep pushing your name down you think joe gets in i think so i'm Um, fucking with you are you kidding me oh no i don't know i mean because i feel like there's so few like just true true first ballot they're gonna look at here so here's the thing so he has the most incredible 10 year stretch of pretty much anyone to start a career. But when you look at hall of fame, offensive tackles, they mostly all got 13 plus years. So they're going to look at Joe and they're going to say, well, he only did it for 10 years. I'm just saying that's going to be the nitpick with him. Oh my God. Career. If Joe Thomas doesn't make the hall of fame, I'm going to burn down the building. I, <laughs> I'm with you too. Trust me. Um, but that's, I know that was a consideration for him and thinking about coming back and stuff is like, you know, when you do look at a lot of the guys, because off, the elite offensive linemen used to play for 15 plus years, just you book it and that's the way it is. And as guys are playing less years, that becomes a little bit of a trickier situation. Now, his resume is pretty much flawless. So I don't know how you could, you know, pick any nits with that. But uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting if <laughs> that doesn't happen, because I feel like at that point, people would just be like this. This isn't working like we need to fix something because a guy like that should have no like. He's just run through it pretty easily. All right. This next question, I was just blown away by the politeness. Fred Liggett asks, I saw a kind request on Twitter to send in any questions that could be used in an upcoming podcast. I feel like I have an interesting question and something was said by a former NFL lineman that piqued my interest on the matter. Tim Grunhard, former Kansas City Chiefs offensive lineman, had a weekly radio show here in KC on 810. He was talking on this week's show about the current OTAs underway in Casey's practice facility. Gunner said that due to non-contact rules in place, the linemen can only show up and run in place or work on their technique individually. He feels sometime soon, linemen will not be reporting to OTAs as there will be no need. This leads me to wonder if Mitchell Schwartz agrees 
with Grenard's take on the future of offensive defensive linemen at offseason team activities. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your question, Fred. What do you think about this? So the answer is no, if I'm getting the question right, because the rules have stated for forever that OTAs are non-contact, but they're not non-contact. And this is the issue I've had the past couple of years with the NFLPA and kind of what they're trying to do with changing OTAs and kind of forcing guys to not show up like the Juwan James thing last year, where you want guys to stay home, work out on their own, they get hurt. And then the team's like, well, we are not absolved or we're going to absolve ourselves in that situation. So my thing is the rules have said they're non-contact for forever. And the NFLPA checks up on every team. They watch the film. They go to all the practices and it's a full practice. You're just not wearing shoulder pads, but you're wearing helmets and the O-line and D-line are still going against each other and you're still blocking and you're getting helmets to your shoulders and you're getting bruises and all this other stuff. So they show up every year and they watch practice and they're just like, yep, this is fine. We're not going to flag the teams. We're not going to report anything. It's it's contractually negotiated that it's non-contact. Like we just haven't been pushing to uphold the rules saying it's non-contact. So you get 10 practices plus three mini camp days. So you have 13 like somewhat legit practices. They feel similar enough to, you know, a helmets only day in training camp or what a Friday feels like during the season in terms of the level of contact. And so it's not non-contact. That's, that's something that we say and teams only get fined when there's a fight or when some DB like undercuts a receiver and then the clip goes viral or like they're both going for the interception and they smack into each other and it looks really bad. That's a lot of contact. And that's when, you know, things get hairy and they get fined and they get draft picks taken away and stuff. But if you were to go to like a normal OTA practice, it would just look like a normal practice, just only in helmets. So offensive linemen still get a lot of work. That's why I actually am a proponent of OTAs because, you know, I felt as a player, like, what I'm doing in May and June isn't necessarily going to like be remembered by my body in August, but I think there is kind of a foundational aspect of you get like five different installs because you have phase one, you have phase two, you have phase three, and then you have mini camp. And some teams with a new coach have the voluntary veteran mini camp at the beginning. So those are five separate windows where you kind of go back to day one of install and you install fresh. And then two weeks later, phase two starts, you install fresh. And three weeks later, phase three starts, you install fresh and the mandatory mini camp starts and you install fresh. And so getting those installs, getting practice reps, even if they're lower tempo and, you know, as an offensive lineman, you kind of always joke with the D line, like, Hey, this is non-contact. Like maybe don't bull rush me straight into the quarterback, but you can ask any lineman. There is way more contact than you think during these practices. And that's been my thing this past couple of years is like, we negotiated for non-contact off-season practices and our players association shows up every year and watches these practices in person and the film and doesn't say a word. And they see just like carnage happening between the offensive and defensive line. So like, we just need to actually enforce what we negotiated for and what we gave up a lot of money for. Why do you think that hasn't, hasn't happened? Do you think it's not a fight worth fighting? Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure because, you know, when they show up, we say like, Hey, you know, this isn't obviously non-contact. Like I think it's just, that's the way it has been. And my guess is that, I mean, I didn't grow up with two a days and with what stuff looked like before the 2011 CBA. So I don't know what those practices 
used to look like and used to feel like, and maybe this is a lot lower pace and a lot lower tempo than what it was. Um, so it just looks and feels better to them. And, you know, most of the reps for the PA obviously played in a much different era. So to them, maybe it just looks like kind of a joke to what they're used to for off season. Um, but I don't know. I mean, again, that's, that's my thing. We negotiated and we gave up a lot of money for better off season and better practice regulations. And it literally says non-contact. So I don't know how O-line and D-linemen could go against each other and be expected to block and it not involve contact um so your guess is as good as mine i don't really know why that's not the case selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, next one here. Jim Bullock asks, he asked a couple, but I wanted to talk about the second one. He said, how important is continuity for an offensive line? Obviously, it matters to a certain extent, but how much of a disadvantage is it for offensive lines that have not had the ability to play next to each other for multiple years? Chiefly Bacon asked a very similar question on Twitter. So multiple people hit on it, and I wanted to ask you about this. We talk about it all the time as it being more important at all for the offensive line than it is a lot of other position groups. Can you feel that? Do you think it's really important for an offensive line to have familiarity with each other from year to year? Yeah, it is important. The better the individual offensive lineman, probably the less it matters because your feel, your skill level kind of just takes over and makes things right to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two kind of main ways that continuity matters. So the first is physical, which is, you know, you block with the guy next to you a decent amount of the time. You have a lot of double teams. And so there's the physical element of how does his body react? What does he do when he goes to post a guy on a double team? Um, how does, you know, his footwork impact my footwork? Is he a wide base guy and I might trip over him and I need to adjust something with my footwork or, do I need to give him a little bit more space on this particular block because he goes a little further than I go? Um, so there are those kind of specific physical things, like how do we mesh um, blocking or like on pass plays, you know, say you've got slight help by him. Is he a guy who sets pretty flat? And you know that like if you set too deep and your DN goes inside, like he won't be there for you. Um So there's that aspect of kind of the physical, where's he going to be? How does that impact what I'm doing in my blocks? And then there's the mental, which is the trust factor of, you know, you go to Seattle, you go to Arrowhead and you can't hear anything and you can barely get the snap off. Like, do you (laughs) trust that you can let your guy go inside because the slide is going your way and everybody heard it? And, you know, maybe the linebacker. Maybe you've got one certain protection when the linebacker's on the left side of the line, but at the snap, he's over on the right side, and you just kind of have to trust that everyone's seeing the same thing and tracking the guy properly. And, you know, he's going to loop all the way around your defensive end, who's going to spike inside, and you can trust that the guard's going to be there. I can let him go, and I'll pick up the linebacker. You know, that that's something that takes a while to gain that kind of trust and, you know, to, to know that your guy's going to be there and you – essentially need to see the game the same way and have the same reaction. And you have to trust that you're going to see the game the same way and have the same reaction. That's kind of the, the, the hard part, the mental side of it, you know, that the physical side, that's what practice is for. You learn how to block together. You double team, you do all these things. Um, obviously the practice is for the mental side, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in games that can't happen in practice um, mentally that, you know, most of the physical stuff is similar. So um, getting to that point where you can kind of trust everybody and, you know, especially as a tackle, having to trust a center in particular, you know, giving the points, giving the calls, it just, it's kind of a full circle thing that once someone doesn't trust anybody else, you know, you're less confident, you probably don't play as well. That guy then doesn't trust you because you're not playing as well. And then it kind of snowballs downward. So it's, 
less important when the individual pieces are good players and probably older players who just kind of know what to do. It's a lot more important when they're young and maybe not quite as good that they have confidence and they trust the guy next to them. They trust kind of the whole unit working together. Yeah, I mean, the Chiefs last year are an example of there wasn't a lot of continuity. There are a lot of new pieces, but all of the individual pieces that got dropped in were so good that it ultimately didn't end up mattering. When your center is playing as one of the best centers in the league, when your left guard is a guy who's been around and has played thousands and thousands of snaps, ultimately the continuity becomes less important. Right. And then that's when you kind of get excited because it's like, hey, we've got all these pieces. You know, we've got a sixth year left guard, a third or fourth year left tackle rookie center rookie right guard you know they started with basically a rookie right tackle depending on how you look at opt-outs and they played pretty well and and you're just like okay well they're gonna get way better and they're gonna start trusting each other a lot more too and so there's gonna be physical growth obviously and there's gonna be a ton of mental growth too and yeah that's kind of the best combination where you have a pretty young offensive line who plays really well and there's a ton of room to grow and they're just gonna like grow into their roles more and more but then it gets to like why were they so good it's because they had a certain level of skill and a certain kind of feel for the game that they could acclimate themselves to that you know kind of trust and continuity factor much quicker next one here we got from twitter i wanted to ask you this because i've seen your jersey wall and i feel like people will get something out of this andrew baker says how do jersey swaps work when you did your jersey spot with Von Miller, was it spur of the moment or was it pre-planned? You've got a decent collection, so you're a veteran of the jersey swap here. I am. Um, so he just that, that one. He came up to me. He's like, "Hey, man, you want to swap jerseys?" Like I try to get a jersey of the guys I go against. I was like, "Yeah, that's awesome. I'd love to." Um, I was never as good at asking about jerseys. Like, it's not your personality. <laughs> no, like I wish I had a Khalil Mack jersey. I wish I had a Bosa jersey, but like I just could never bring myself to like quite ask them. So the ones I got typically it'd kind of just be spontaneous, and we just kind of be talking. And I'd either know the guy well enough to be like, "Hey, you want to swap jerseys?" or they'd ask me. Or a lot of them are kind of teammates. Um, you know, I have a bunch of the Cleveland guys. I have you know, Mitch Morris and Wiley and Wiz and a lot of the Chiefs guys as well. Um, so the guys you play with, it's obviously very easy. You can yeah. get their jersey while they're there, or you can wait until they're with another team or you're with another team and then ask for the jersey. But in terms of the actual on-field jersey swaps, like I think there was a video in the last couple of years, right? Someone went up to like Tom Brady or maybe it was Peyton Manning a few years ago, like, hey, you want to swap jerseys with me? And they're like, no, nah, I'm okay. Like... <laughs> You know, you don't necessarily want to give that up because the because of that, because, you know, I'm cheap and a lot of guys are a lot cheaper than you think. It actually costs money for the jersey. Like the yeah. team charges you for the jersey. I How much is it? I think for us, it was 250 So $250 for every jersey that you give away. Um, I know some teams it's like 800 or or 1000 I think they do that just because they hate giving away jerseys and having to make new ones so it's more like punitive like we don't want Jesus. you to jersey swap um but yeah i mean most teams it's you know a few hundred dollars to do that um so for the most part it's guys who are already kind of boys after the game they meet up and they're like hey let's swap jerseys like yeah that's cool um and then some of them it's like a respect thing you know maybe it's the younger guy saying like hey you know I love going against you or that was awesome. Like, can I get your Jersey? I'd love to have it for the wall. Um, so yeah, it just, it's interesting, you know, how that works out. It's, it's, 
sometimes spontaneous a lot of the times planned especially for the younger guy if he's trying to get a specific older guy's jersey and you know it's cool to have a brady jersey or to have mike evans jersey or whatever um that's when it gets a little bit planned but you just go up to a guy after the game be like hey do you mind can i get your jersey and they say yeah all right let's get to our next one here buddy from chicago asked about the bears switching to an outside zone blocking scheme and i, I want to kind of condense this a little bit he said what effect can a change in an out in an offensive line blocking scheme and o-line coaching have on the performance of an o-line the bears are going to a wide zone blocking scheme under new offensive line coach chris morgan but they've lost their two best offensive linemen from last season it goes over some of the replacements that they've made we're being told that a wide zone blocking scheme can mask o-line talent deficiencies what do you think? Charles Jones also asked about the Bears moving to this sort of scheme. So I'm curious. You've played in that offense before, or a version of that offense before. Chris Morgan was the offensive line coach for Kyle Shanahan for a couple of years in Atlanta. So, And you played for Kyle Shanahan the year before he got to Atlanta. So there's all those kind of te- tentacles that connect things in the league here. What do you think about that scheme helping mask deficiencies for offensive linemen in general? There's a yes and a no because... I do think, you know, some of the better running teams, especially lately, have featured more of the wide zone. And my theory on that is, one, you know, you've kind of got these offensive masterminds who know how to scheme things up properly. But I think by nature of it being wider, things getting stretched out, the seams are wider, you know, on an inside zone. Think of a traditional kind of between the tackles run. Like things aren't quite as open just inherently because you're not using as much of the field horizontally. And so having that wide zone scheme, if one guy screws up, you know, say you've got a five yard window to make a block, you know, say you kind of missed the block and the guy gets three and a half of those five yards, but there's still a yard and a half of space that he hasn't covered that he needed to get to before the running back makes the cut or on inside zone, you really just have like a yard of space <laughs> to, to kind of make it. Um, and so that that's where I think maybe the easier aspect comes into play. I think also, you know, by, having a wider more horizontal field to cover defensively it stretches things out it tires out defense alignment it's more difficult to run uh laterally while also holding your ground i think that's part of it but in terms of like making up for offensive line deficiency that's where i'd push back you know running that scheme doesn't really make you a better player you still have to have confident players you know maybe what it does um mask is a guy who's 295 pounds, you're not now asking him to just base block a 320 pound, you know, defensive tackle one-on-one in the hole. And the running back is basically just reading that guy and making a cut off of him. You know, that's a tough situation to, to ask your guard to just kind of be the focal point of the run. And you only have three yards to work with, and he's got to move a guy who's bigger than him off the ball by himself. You know, that that's where it gets tough. That's where, allowing that space that side to side agility that movement um you can make up for lack of size with some quickness and it kind of gets back to you know the force equals mass times acceleration like the 295 pound guy he might not be quite as like purely strong as you know kevin zeitler who's you know (laughs) the freaking tank and works out 18 times a week but at 295 pounds he still is pretty strong and maybe he's got a little more for or a little more, you know, acceleration behind him and he's able to time up his movements with, you know, quick twitch and he's able to have the same force output, but that's not unlocked in 
you know, that inside zone base block that's unlocked with a wide zone where he can kind of use his agility. So um, you still need, you know, good offensive linemen. You can't just have bad offensive linemen and, you know, just say, hey, we're going to run wide zone. You're going to be good now because <laughs> if a guy's not strong, if he doesn't have good technique, like the thing that kills wide zones is penetration, especially on the edges. And so if you have a tackle who's not super strong and gets kind of bookended off the edge, like those plays aren't going to work. If you have a guard who you know gives up two yards of penetration every play, like wide zone still not going to work. So it, it is a bit more forgiving of a run scheme, I think, by the horizontal nature. Similarly to what we're seeing with the pass game, you know, teams that have a vertical threat that opens up much more of the field to work with. I think that's a good way to think about what wide zone does for the run game. You know, having that horizontal stretch um, opens up more space and allows for a little bit more margin of error. All right. Next one here is something I've thought about a lot in the past, and I'm, I'm glad someone asked about it. Peter Macaluso says, after the Super Bowl, when it looked like Tom Brady was going to retire, and there was all the Stafford Hall of Fame talk, it led me to a weird thought. Since it currently feels like getting a rank can catapult someone who's pretty good into being a Hall of Famer, what do you think happens in a post-Brady world where all of these guys might be able to get a ring? Can't you see a world in which Burrow, Herbert, Allen, Lamar, and even Kyler and Mac Jones each get one since Brady isn't there to play in half the Super Bowls anymore? We all tend to think Mahomes is going to fill that Brady role of always being there, but we've seen with Rodgers, it's really hard to get there. I think there's a chance there's a lot more parity moving forward, simply because there's so many guys now capable of dragging their team to a title. Long gone is the decade plus, where it was basically Patey, or Patey, where it's basically Peyton, Brady, and Ben trading off ASC championships. I think it'd be good for the sport if we end up with a few legit contenders every year, new legit contenders every year, even if it make those Hall of Fame benchmarks a little bit more muddled down the line. Here's why I wanted to talk about this. I've always been fascinated by this idea. What would happen if the Patriots never existed? Like, what would the NFL look like over the past 20 years if the Patriots just weren't a thing? And there are several different things you could look at. Peyton Manning would probably be the greatest quarterback of all time. Like, we would talk about Peyton Manning as the best quarterback ever. Late career Peyton Manning in Indianapolis did not lose to the Patriots as much as you think he did. But early on, that like 03, 04 run, the Colts could have won like three Super Bowls in a row if the Patriots were not a thing. The other one I always come back to, and I think the, the Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger probably would have won more often, the Chargers. The Chargers lost to the Patriots twice. Right, Phil Rivers again. In 2006 and 2007, it, we would think of Phil Rivers totally differently, I think, if the Patriots never existed. But also, Matt Ryan would have a Super Bowl. You know, all There are so many different guys that would have won them. And I think that now we're going to move into a place where that type of league probably happens. Where you know Mahomes is going to win a couple more, I'd have to assume. They've been to four straight AFC Championship games. That's going to continue to happen. But if there, if there is no team that has that just outlier-type dominance like the Patriots, we are going to see more teams and more quarterbacks win them. Like It's almost inevitable that that's what's going to happen. So I do like the what-if game. I don't think it's fair to say what if they didn't exist because that, that leads into way too many things that could happen. But you could say, what if he wasn't historic? What if he just won four? Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Like, what if they were just a normal team? Right. So if they were a normal team and they only won four, well, that only opens up three rings. So you can't say Peyton would have had two or three more, and Rivers would have had one or two, and Matt Ryan, and Roethlisberger. Well, like, that's there's not only as fun, three though. rings to go out. That's what. I, yeah, I know. 
Um, but I had to have some semblance of realism in this. Um, so you're really just looking at three rings over 20 years. Maybe Peyton has one. I don't know about Phil. Uh, maybe we'll give two to Peyton. And now know. the 2006 Chargers would have won a Super Bowl. <laughs> what happens when Justin Herbert faces Philip Rivers? Uh, <laughs> your brain explodes. <laughs> no, I, I do think to the original question, it is going to be interesting. I think we're going to go back towards a much more difficult Hall of Fame process because we're going to have guys with a lot of stats like these next 20 years are going to be pretty nuts for stats and say you've got 13 quarterbacks that win 20 Super Bowls. Not all those guys are probably going to be Hall of Famers. Not all those guys should be Hall of Famers. That's that's probably going to be true. And it's going to make for a much more difficult process. I mean, you've got the quarterbacks that have won Super Bowls you know, a Dilfer who kind of gets thrown about as like the quote unquote worst quarterback to win a Super Bowl type of thing that, you know, you just know that guy doesn't have a Hall of Fame career. You don't have to really think, have that conversation. You don't have to worry about it. And then you've got, you know, the the Flacco's, you know, is he a lead? Is he not? I think we kind of all agree that Flacco's not a Hall of Famer. Um, although I'm sure there's a certain segment of the Northeast that's now upset with me. But we're, we're going to get to this point of, you know, does a Super Bowl mean you're a Hall of Famer? And if these 10 years go that way and say we have eight quarterbacks win over the next 10 years and we've got quarterbacks with one Super Bowl and gaudy stats, that almost might downgrade Stafford down the road. And you might think like, all right, well, he kind of did have more of an accumulation career. He had one crazy postseason where they won a Super Bowl. Other than that, you know, maybe he only made one other NFC championship game or championship game. You know, does that really look like a Hall of Fame career? And it does get to be more muddy, and that's where, you know, the NFL voting process is is going to become really tricky because you're going to be voting for guys with very similar resumes, similar statistical resumes, similar Super Bowl numbers, and it's going to come back to kind of the knee jerk, the the gut reaction of does this guy feel like a Hall of Famer to me? And it's it's definitely going to muddy the waters down the road. And with Matthew Stafford, the question, the answer at this very moment is absolutely no. Like he's just not. He was. He's never been to. A, he's never made an All Pro team. He's been to one Pro Bowl and he won one Super Bowl. Matthew I Stafford's think that's the up, way we feel, but I think, like nationally or the way people talk about it, I think a lot of people do feel like this validated his career and kind of proved that he just had ten years of poor situation and that this is more his true level of quarterback. Like I'm with you on what you're saying, but I guess we can't really pull the the Hall of Fame voters. Uh, I don't know if Peter King's written about it or kind of what he feels, but you know, if you're able to conclusion at the end of this year can be that Matthew Stafford is better than we thought he was for a very long time. It doesn't have to go from Matthew Stafford is better than we thought he was to Matthew Stafford is definitely a hall of famer. Now that, that jump is not necessary based on what happened. I'm with you, but that's, I feel like you don't understand your business in 2022. (laughs) I understand why the conversation is happening. I just don't need to engage in it. That is, that's, that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. That's like, I mean, that's a whole other tangent, but all these things, like we just don't need to declare these types of things. Like it's just not necessary. Let's just wait for the guy to finish playing and see how things unravel and go from there. But it is a really interesting question. It's it's a really interesting point, and it's going to be harder for quarterbacks to distinguish themselves because um, a lot of guys are going to have really good numbers, and I think a lot of guys are going to have a decent amount of playoff success, and it just becomes like how much do you value 
one or two extra games that a guy had better success versus the other. And some people value the crap out of them. Some people don't. Um, it's just kind of eye of the beholder. All right. Last one here. And I wanted to get into this because I know the answer and I know the story. And it's kind of a football-based story. And, that, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. Patty Dyer McMurray asked on Twitter, Mitch, how did you develop your love for cooking? If you guys don't know, Mitch loves to cook. You should follow him on Instagram. You should check out all the things he does. Mitch and I both love food uh, in a pretty deep way to the point where last time we ate dinner out together, I think the server was like a little bit horrified at the amount of food that we ordered at the barbecue restaurant. But I want I want you to talk about this because I think that the, the story says a lot about the type of team you guys had in Cleveland and just the type of interactions you can have when your position group is awesome. Yeah, I mean, in general, I was a big kid and I was hungry a lot and I liked to eat. And I kind of stopped watching cartoons and I started watching Food Network and I started watching cooking shows and I just enjoyed it and started trying to cook at home. You know, I probably my favorite dish to make still is pizza. You know, I started that as a teenager in my parents' house. Yeah. You know, looking back now, those were disgusting compared to what I can make now, but I thought they were <laughs> awesome at the time and I was so excited about it. And, you know, you go to college and it, it's helpful if you can feed yourself, especially as a football player, when you got to be there for summer school and you're not getting meal points and meal credits and you got to feed yourself and then get to the NFL and just keep getting more interested in it. You know, I've got more money than I've ever had. I've got more offseason time, more time off, and it's it's fun to be able to cook. And then I land in Cleveland with, you know, Joe and Alex and John Greco and Greco is like. I mean, certified chef in my mind, he is awesome. Um, and so we used to, you know, get together after games, you know, we all live within about eight minutes of each other and it was easy to, you know, we also had the 1 PM Eastern game pretty much every week. So we could get home by about four 30 and have the rest <laughs> of the rest of the afternoon and night off. And, you know, we could gather at one of the guy's houses and, you know, cook together and stuff. And so, I think the year before I got there, Colt McCoy had gotten all the O-Lyman green eggs. And, you know, I remember we'd make pulled pork and all this stuff. And Greco made a crab mac and cheese. No recipe, just off the top of his head. It just whipped it together. And I was like, oh, my God, how is that possible? Like, it was the most amazing thing I ever saw. And, like, we had the pulled pork and it was amazing. And. I was just like, okay, like there's way more to like this food game than I realized. Cause you know, I kind of made simple stuff, like the stuff I didn't need a recipe for I'd made a bunch or was like very simple. Like I couldn't comprehend making, you know, a bechamel and making the cheese sauce from scratch. No recipe. Just like, it's a very satisfying process. Very satisfying. It's amazing. And, you know, so I got a lot of inspiration from John and, you know, he, he sent me this whole PDF list. It was like a four page thing of like barbecue sauces and like barbecue rubs and recipes and stuff. And just like the dude creates his own barbecue rubs and sauces. Like he had like an Alabama white sauce and he had, all, I was like, what dude, this is awesome. And, you know, we made, um, like carnitas, like he had the sauce that he made and the recipe and all that stuff. So going and being with guys who have a similar mindset and obviously other 300 pounders who enjoy eating as much as you do, um, just really kind of stoked the flames there and, um, led me to, you know, much larger appreciation of food and really seeing what else was out there and knowing, you know, Hey, I mean, if if John's this good and then he can whip up stuff like this and, you know, Alex can make some stuff, Joe can make some stuff. Um, although now these days, Joe on Twitter with his food, like it's either keto or it's sous vide. And it's just like, 
Come on, Joe. You got to branch out a little bit. We get it. You hunt, you sous vide your duck, you eat keto lavash and you make pizza out of it. Like cool dude. Um, but no, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing you can see. We all kind of enjoy food. We like cooking it. We like the preparation process. And then I really wanted to get more into to barbecue as well. I, you know, I lived in an apartment in Cleveland. I wasn't allowed to have any grills on my patio. So I one time set off the smoke alarm, I think making sausage is either making sausage or making pizza or maybe doing both at the same time. Um, so I was like, well, I guess I can't really make pizza the way I want to. I can't like grill inside the way I want to. Um, so my next place I knew I really wanted to grill. I really wanted to learn how to like barbecue and smoke. And then I landed in Kansas city, which is the best possible place <laughs> to be in those things. And, uh, it's really just, you know, kind of continually taken off from there. And, you know, obviously I like sharing the photos. I like sharing, you know, kind of the, what I'm doing and people would always ask like, Hey, what's the recipe? How'd you do that? You know, especially barbecue people just like need to know what your process well, was. Well, you're my barbecue resource. I mean, the amount of texts I've asked you, sent you about like barbecue technique is, is a majority of our <laughs> offline communication. Yeah. And that's the thing is I kind of go down rabbit holes with the stuff I get like really passionate and into passionate about and into. And so if I, haven't made something myself. I've probably seen a video or probably have read some <laughs> forums and people <laughs> discussing the best way to do whatever, or some theory about it. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something I have a lot of knowledge about. And I think both of us too, were curious and I always like to, to know the why behind things. And so when I did start watching food shows, you know, it was very much like good eats with Alton Brown, like all the informative, like, this is what's happening. This is why this is happening. You know, I liked Emerald. I like Wolfgang Puck. And those were a little bit more kind of for show, but I think they also did a good job of kind of teaching as you went. But um, if you want to go off on a super long food tangent, which I won't get into, the death of kind of the studio cooking show and the informative cooking show. And now everything is just like, here's a bunch of random ingredients. Go, you got yeah. 10 minutes. Uh, that's just not my jam. I still like kind of the, the traditional, like, this is a dish I'm going to make. I'm going to show you how to do it. These are the ingredients and let's go. Yeah. I, I'm not into it the same way you are, but I, I, I am into it. Like I love to cook and I, I came to it a little bit later and I think it's important every like six months to a year. And I've gotten more into this. I've gotten older kind of sitting back and be like, what do I like? What do I like to do? How do I like to spend my time? Just because that shit, that stuff shifts as you get older and, uh, for me, it you know it happened in a pretty crystallizing way around the start of the pandemic. Where I was like, I love to cook, like I just love food, and I really want to start getting into this. And I and I really did. And some people love to make things, you know, they love to build a piece of furniture. And I just never liked that. I never got any satisfaction out of that process when it was over. I didn't look at it and say, Look what I did! Isn't that rewarding? I've just never gotten that. But with food, I do, and I think it's it's driven in large part by how I was raised. Like my mom was like that. Like we would just, when every time people came over, my mom made food for a hundred people. It didn't matter if 10 people were there. It didn't matter if 50 people for that were there. That's how much food she made. And she loves seeing the satisfaction on other people's faces. And I, I, that's how I feel. So when people come over, I cook, you know, if we're having a dinner party, I cook, I cook everything. I love doing that. And I think it's partially driven by, the part of my personality that needs just constant affirmation, which is the reason that I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> I, just, I just need, <laughs> that's what I need. And I think that food also drives that. And I just love the process of it. I just, there's mac and cheese is a perfect example. Like making that first batch of mac and cheese when you're making the bechamel from scratch and everything else, like there is something super rewarding about that. And I'm just excited about the summer. Like I cannot wait to just 
I just went to Mexico for nine days and just ate like I've never eaten before. And we're going to buy a tortilla press this week. Like I'm very, very excited (laughs) about getting into that because I'm the same way you are. Like I just love catching waves like that food wise and just like riding them until I'm bored of them. And that's just, it's a really, really fun, rewarding process. That is awesome. Yeah. I've looked into the tortilla press stuff before. It's pretty easy, right? It's just it's like very easy. Water. It's very easy. Yeah. It's just, it's, I think it's about making the right masa and about getting the masa the right consistency. But that's, it's fun in itself to do that. It's right, the same yeah. way with pizza dough. I mean, like getting your pizza dough right is really fun. So now I'm really, really looking forward to what that's going to be like this summer and just like figuring out different meats to make on the smoker and use them in tacos and just everything that goes into that. Like there is something so rewarding and fun about that entire thing. And we're getting right into the time of year where you can just do a shitload of that. Yeah. My pizza story is I was watching food network. I was watching Wolfgang puck and I saw him make pizza dough and I was like, that's not that difficult. I could try that. And I just did it. Like you just mix the ingredients for like 30 seconds and you need it a little bit and you let it rest. And all of a sudden you got pizza dough. Um, I've, you know, seen that about tortillas a lot. I mean, I feel like if you go to any restaurant that has tortillas, like if you walk in and you see them slapping down tortillas onto a flat top and you're like, oh my God, they make fresh tortillas. Like no one has ever been disappointed in a restaurant that makes homemade fresh tortillas. No, it just, that's never been the case. Now, the thing I'm curious about is whether it's scalable, whether you can just make, you know, five tortillas and not have 20 of them left over and feel like you got to eat tacos for a week, which again, it's probably the best way to get rid of leftovers anyway. Um, but if you're trying to go a little bit lower carb and you don't necessarily want to have tacos every single time, um, you know, whether you can just make a small batch for like one meal, that's always my thing with like desserts, especially or bread or, you know, other things that I'd love to make a lot more is I just don't want or need that quantity of it. And I wish you could do, you know, a quarter of a full recipe. Yeah, that's my problem is I, I typically try to eat fairly healthy during the week because we go ham on the weekend when we go out. We go out for dinner once a week. I mean, it, I, exploring restaurants and exploring food in Chicago is one of my favorite things to do. So I mostly eat fairly well during the week so I can just eat whatever I want whenever I go to a restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night. So this summer, I think it's going to be about finding the balance of cooking and doing fun stuff while also being able to do that and not weighing 300 pounds by the time the summer is over. So that that's always well, the challenge. Feeling at the not weighing 300 pounds thing. So you well, yeah, you have it. <laughs> I think it's a little bit. You wear it a little bit differently than I would. So it's going to be okay. Yeah, All I right, could, I could lose some though. I think majority of people kind of feel the same way, but. It's uh, As you said, we're getting into cooking time of year, so it's hard to do that. It's going to be great. I'm very much looking forward to it. Very much looking forward to the next time we do this because this was very fun. Really appreciate the time, buddy. And really, really appreciate the questions from all of you. We do this because you guys do such a good job with it. We will do it again next week. I'm hoping with Shiel. I'm putting him on the spot. Now he has to do it because I said that he's going to do it. So we're going to do it next week with Shiel. Very much looking forward to that. We'll be back this week with our normal programming i'm back we're back appreciate you guys listening thank you to to Lindsay for doing the show last week really enjoyed that hope you guys did as well we'll be back with Lindsay and nate and sando and some other great guests this week so please check back on thursday for now appreciate you guys listen please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice please subscribe to the athletic athletic.com slash football show we'll be back on thursday talk to you guys soon This was The Athletic Football Show.